1: In a world that is ever more complex, are we able to track how ideas emerge, spread and improve?
2: Over generations and generations and generations, our culture becomes more complex and it becomes more diverse.
1: And the new building innovation, which will revolutionise the way that structures are
3: built. then they've managed to uh, produce a structure that's both lighter and stronger and they're going to use it to build a couple of bridges in Australia.
1: I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. But first, for years there's been talk of designer babies... This refers to prospective parents who can mix and match genetic attributes to create the kid they want, be it smarter, taller, or more athletic. Usually, this conjures up the idea of gene editing, that is, actively changing lots of little variants in the genes of an embryo to affect its traits. While this will surely happen in humans, amid public outcry over interfering with nature and playing God, a less intrusive technology already exists that does something similar— Labs can screen embryos and select ones for test tube fertilization to minimize the risk of genetic disorders like cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs disease. An American company called Genomic Prediction is taking this one step further, looking at whether embryos have a risk of developing some illnesses later in life, such as heart disease. And a couple in California are going through the process right now. So how does this work and what are the implications? Anunno Bhattacharya is a science writer and a journalist, and he's written about it for an upcoming issue of The Economist. He joins me down the line. Hello, Anunno. Hi, Ken. How are you? I'm great. Anuno, what is happening?
4: Well, uh, when most people think about designer babies, what they're thinking about is gene editing. Now, gene editing is very much in its infancy. And what you're really talking about there is uh, going into a genome and uh, with a snip here or there, you change one or two genes, either to avoid some sort of heritable illness or make some other large change in the genome. Now, what's become increasingly clear over the last few decades is that It's not just one or two genes that affect your chances of developing an illness in later life, such as, say, heart disease or diabetes, but it's hundreds of genes spread right the way through the genome. And not only that, but it's small changes in those genes, many, many thousands of them, that all add up to affect your chances of a disease or lots of other traits.
1: So what is this technology?
4: It began with a technique called uh, genome-wide association studies. Now, as the name suggests, this is uh, looking at the entire genome um, of somebody. And what genome-wide association studies did is, using special chips, they were able to begin picking up the genetic variation across the genome that contributes to a particular trait or illness. Um, And then once you had uh, located all of these little bits of genetic variation, you could use computer algorithms and artificial intelligence to find out how they were correlated to the trait in question. So how do these chips work? So the technology that's enables this is uh, something called uh, SNP chips. Now SNP, in this case, SMP, stands for single nucleotide polymorphisms. And these are the small changes in genes that I was talking about earlier. The chips are essentially silicon chips and they have bits of DNA on them. And when you run uh, somebody's uh, DNA over these chips, uh, the DNA sticks to it, and it tells you whether the person has the particular SNPs in question. How accurate is this sort of
1: screening, and what does it cost?
4: Well, the chips are incredibly cheap, and that's a major advantage. There, less than uh, $50 each. Now, given the huge cost of uh, screening for, uh, say, breast cancer or other Cancers, it seems to be a bit of a no-brainer to apply this. In terms of how reliable they are, it depends on how well a particular illness or trait has been studied. So the more information you have, the more genetic information you have, the more reliable in a way these tests are. But it has reached a stage where, for say, heart disease, you can predict quite reliably whether somebody is at three or fourfold risk of developing a disease in later life.
1: It sounds like a fantastic technology that we should all embrace. Who could possibly be opposed to it?
4: Well, and here you get to the controversy because when you start selecting embryos on the basis of this, you run into problems. So there are many issues here. One is what traits uh, should people be allowed to select? Are we Happy with people being able to select embryos on the basis of their intelligence on whether they'll be good at playing cricket or football or whether they should have blonde hair and blue eyes. On the slightly less controversial side, if you're trying to pick a healthy baby, a very complicated process because if a, a particular embryo might be at high risk of diabetes but they may be at low risk of other diseases and finding that balance is a difficult decision and often would require counselling. In Britain, for example, the regulatory body that's charged with this, the HFEA, would almost certainly not allow this technology because their view is that an intervention like this um, is only justifiable if it saves the life of the child.
1: So, is Britain being unenlightened and illiberal, or are they being enlightened and showing the dignity of natural
4: humankind? Well, I think that's the question that is now going to be fought over. America has the laxest regulations when it comes to reproductive technologies, probably in the world. Even places like China, for example, would probably balk at selecting embryos for their IQ. And most European countries also would prohibit this technology for similar reasons to the HFEA.
1: So what's the significance of the California couple's decision to screen their embryos and implant it?
4: The significance is that this is the first time that polygenic scoring has been used at the embryo stage to choose which embryo to implant on the basis of whether they will develop particular diseases. Now, the firm, Genomic Prediction, has uh, said that it will not offer uh, the scores required to distinguish between embryos of different intelligences. But in theory, there's no reason why they couldn't. And I think when we look back on this, we may see this as as the start of designer babies proper.
1: So what you're saying is that children don't come from storks
4: (laughs) um i'm going to leave that to a grown-up to explain (laughs) i don't know thank you thanks very much ken
1: if you want to learn more about genetic screening you can pick up an upcoming issue of the economist and you can also subscribe by going to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for 12 dollars or 12 pounds Last week on Babbage, we spoke to Tom Siebel about the importance of digital transformation in today's business and technology world. He's written a book on the subject called Digital Transformation, Survive and Thrive in an Era of Mass Extinction. So we ran a contest to give away a copy of the book to the listener who best answered this question. What company or institution in society failed to make the requisite transformation in an earlier pre-digital era? Now, we had lots of great entries, and our favorites that sadly didn't win were the Underwood Manual Typewriter. They missed the shift to electric. The Edison Disc. They had superior sound quality, but failed to electrify their production processes, and they went out of business. Other big theme ideas included the Dutch East India Company that failed to invest in new naval assets and Neanderthals less able to cope with the new climate conditions. But one of our favorites and the runner-up is Xerox. The company bet that businesses would continue to use paper. So their experiments with new operating systems and graphical interfaces were not commercialized. But those innovations were picked up by Microsoft for software and Apple for the computer mouse. And they ran with it. But wait! The contest stressed that we wanted pre-digital transformations. So sadly, it is not eligible to win the top prize. So the winner is a listener James Callahan from Columbia, Maryland, who wrote My great-great-grandfather owned a New York City business called Oregon Ironworks and they made the pipes and valves and such that carried the gas for gas lights. They went bankrupt after the electric light came on the scene. And he showed us photographs and a book reference to his great-great-grandfather's business. Now, what I love about the answer is you can imagine that the company could have gone into insulation for the electrical circuits or the right-of-way conduits for electric lighting. We'll send the winner a copy of Tom's book, but Tom has sent us several copies. So we're going to send others to those who answered Underwood Typewriters, the Dutch East India Company, and yes, Xerox. To everyone who entered, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Next up, the field of cultural evolution. I find it one of the most exciting areas of science. It refers to how ideas are transmitted and change over time. Gaia Vince has looked at the issue deeply. She is an award-winning science journalist and an author, and her latest book is Transcendence, How Humans Evolve Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. We invited her in to talk about what she's uncovered. I started by asking Gaia... What is the role and significance of cultural evolution?
2: Cultural evolution is very similar to genetic evolution in that it's the selection down the generation of information. In our genetic evolution, it's the selection of genes and traits, so whether or not a gene for big ears is transmitted down the generation. And it's the same with cultural evolution. So we transmit this information, whether it's how to make a knife or whether or not it's polite to burp. And we pass that down the generations, but we also improve every time we have these little modifications, these little mutations, if you like, creep in. So somebody uh, makes the knife a little bit differently. And that, if it's better than the other way of making a knife, will then be passed down. So Over generations and generations and generations, our culture becomes more complex and it becomes more diverse.
1: So there sounds like there's a sort of Whig interpretation of history here, that there's a sort of natural Hegelian progressiveness to society, that we knew that the Egyptians had one man is free today, all are free. Then explain The Guns of Flanders and The Decimation of Verdun.
2: So, yeah, I mean, I started off writing this book with that very idea that we're progressing towards something better and that, you know, in the past, these poor Stone Age idiots didn't know any better and so they made stuff and they weren't very clever and it was a bit rubbish. And now we've become really great over the generations and look, we have iPhones and we have, you know, aeroplanes and all that sort of thing. But actually... I'm reassessing that. I think complexity takes time. So the technologies that we have now are more complex and more sophisticated than ones that came earlier in history. But Have we really progressed? Can we say we've progressed?
1: But my concern isn't one of just history. It's really about your point in your book of cultural evolution, where we're seeing it in some domains, but we're not seeing it others. How could that be possible that we all cook our food without actually going through the trial and error that indeed cooking our food is better because we get more of the nutrients without expending the energy? Yet we're not able to do that when it comes to things like on the economic or the political sphere.
2: Well, I would argue that in a lot of ways we are. So if we look at our political and economic systems now, they're very, very different from the small hunter-gatherer bands that existed previously, where just due to the size of the group and just due to the complexities of their lives, what we evolve to is not necessarily something better. I don't want to attach a value to it. What we evolve towards is something more complex and more diverse. So evolution, it delivers generally more complexity. And that's all kinds of evolution. And that exists in our social systems, and it also exists in our technologies. So, so I would say, yes, you know, our social systems now are incredibly complex. We have forms of government, we have forms of democracy, we have local democracies. And, you know, we have the different tools and we have the different components that we started with, which is individual humans. But how we arrange ourselves as a society, I would say, is becoming much more complex. And actually, I argue that we are becoming so complex now and so um, joined up, so collaborative as a humanity rather than as individual people, that we're actually evolving into something very different, a superorganism.
1: Now, how can I not read your book and think that we can evolve in such complexity as to create the modern economy, but we're not able to evolve our thinking to protect the planet and not that we depend on to live?
2: you know i would say we already are we already are taking steps you know there is a new awareness this year's been really really interesting for me because i've been uh, investigating and researching and reporting on environmental change for the past 15 years and the battles I've had to make anybody remotely interested in something random like plastics in the ocean or, or climate change has been, it, you know, it's been impossible. And suddenly this last year, people are really excited about it. So there are tipping points socially, as well as technologically, that take you to the next level that take our species to the next level.
1: So let me press you on this, since you are a student of cultural evolution. What does the history of cultural evolution tell us about how we can tackle these thorny challenges, these complex challenges like climate change? Do we have to simply evolve our thinking at the scale of cultural evolution, which is slow with fits and starts? Or is there a way to jumpstart it so that we can actually solve these really thorny problems?
2: What the history of humanity tells us is that cultural evolution occurs fastest and is more efficient when the size of the group is bigger, and when it's interconnected. And that's happened throughout our history. We see these explosions in cultural evolution. So we see an explosion in new technologies, but also new types of societies forming and new solutions to our problems. And at the moment, we have the biggest population ever, and the most interconnected population as well. So we've got, you know, more than seven and a half billion of us, and we're all hyperconnected. So that gives us the opportunity to exchange change ideas much faster, uh, with more different people and more a diversity of ideas. So theoretically, we should be coming up with more solutions. Not
1: from a political answer, but from a more scientific one. It seems like we're at a period in which the world is going backwards, not forwards, in terms of creating these febrile links that are so beneficial. Am I misreading history?
2: No, science, as with any of our cultural pursuits—whether it's science or whether it's art or whether it's architecture or engineering—anything, it's the same process. We're creating something, and it relies on this connectedness, this collaboration, this sharing of ideas. Actually, everything we do as humans relies on that. And so, yes, if we if we isolate ourselves deliberately, if we if we separate, if we have. Um, the 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 rise of populism actually is is actually um it's a denial of complexity. that's what it is at its heart. It increases divisions um within societies it others people, but essentially it is a denial of complexity. It's climate denialism it's uh, denialism of all sorts of environmental and health related things, and it's very damaging to the kind of open minded collaborative scientific tools that we need in order to find solutions to our most pressing problems, whether they be climate change or whether they be biodiversity loss or poverty. You know, many of the other huge problems we're facing at the moment as a huge global society. Gaia, thank you very much. And this week, we have
1: another book giveaway. This time it is a signed copy of Gaia's new book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolve Through Fire, Language, Beauty and Time. This week we're asking, of the four elements that are focused on in the subtitle, fire, language, beauty, and time, what's missing? Is there a fifth element that ought to be examined and worthy of the subtitle? Send your one-word answer and a short sentence explaining why you chose it to radio at And we'll take a look at them all, choose the best one that we think has the most insight and wit, and one lucky listener will win a signed copy of the book. And finally, for years, concrete and steel have been the foundation of buildings in modern society. But while the two materials help to create strong structures, bringing them together creates a problem known as concrete cancer, which can weaken the concrete. Now, researchers from Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, think they have found a solution. Paul Markley is the Economist Innovation Editor, and he joins me in the studio to talk about it. Hello, Paul. Hello again. Paul, tell us, what is concrete cancer? What is the problem it causes?
3: Well, the problem is, in order to reinforce concrete, as our buildings have got bigger and our skyscrapers have got taller, you need to put something into the concrete. And what's gone in has been steel. And this is commonly called rebar, reinforced steel concrete. Well, steel rusts, and the problem is when it rusts, you're usually from tiny little cracks which let in a little bit of moisture or water, this expands, the rust makes it get bigger, that widens the crack... And that causes the concrete to weaken and eventually fail. And if you look at some buildings, you see these horrible brownish-red streaks on the outside. Well, that's the first signs of what some people call concrete cancer. And so what are we going to do about it? Well, you can use something besides steel. You can put stainless steel in, but that's obviously quite expensive. Or you could use a non-rusting rebar, um, carbon fiber is a typical one or glass reinforced uh, fiberglass as they called it. But these are a bit fiddly. They can be more expensive. And um, one of the difficulties, the building trade has been around a long time and they're very used to the materials they've got. So, you know, does this meet local building permits and regulations? So these things have not really taken off as alternatives. So the industry is pretty much stuck with steel.
1: Though it seems like things are about to change because of researchers and builders in Australia.
3: Yeah, the Australian Researchers have done a couple of novel things. I mean, one is that they're using a combination of rebar, so they make up the skeleton that you pour the concrete onto. Uh, using carbon fiber, where you want to be really strong and fiberglass, uh, glass reinforced um, plastic, where you want it to be cheaper. And this is a a more economical way of doing it. And they've managed to uh, produce a structure that's both lighter and stronger. And they're going to use it to build a couple of bridges in Australia. Paul, I love this idea, but why test it on a bridge? This is in Geelong, uh, near Melbourne, and they want these bridges to last a long time, and they want them to be made from sustainable materials. And the researchers think these bridges could last without any form of maintenance, which uh, ordinary steel-reinforced concrete does need. They could last for 100 years or so, with no maintenance whatsoever. But what if they're wrong? Why test it on a bridge? Well, a bridge is a structure you can manage. Would you want to test this on a skyscraper first and find it doesn't work? No, a bridge is a manageable thing. And also, uh, it's something that, you know, they're pioneering something here. So you want to start with something small. And on top of that, they're not using your normal concrete. They're using a more sustainable version that, uh, in this case, uses uh, fly ash, a more natural material, because concrete itself, particularly when the cement that goes into contact is a big producer of carbon dioxide. And so they're trying to use a binding material that's greener than traditional concrete. So it will, should be in more environmentally sustainable than um, regular steel-reinforced concrete.
1: And so what are the other uses that this technology can go
3: towards? Well, it could be potentially used for anything where – you currently use steel especially if you can get the price within a, a level that would compete with steel reinforcement now some of that saving although the techniques may be more expensive to begin with the fact that the building may sit there for a hundred years or more and not require any maintenance which can be very expensive especially you have to repair bits of crumbling concrete that could make it uh, cheaper in the long run Paul thank you very much Best That's a And that's all for
1: this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a big difference because it allows other people to find and appreciate our podcast too. I'm Kenneth Kukie. And in London, amid the crumbling concrete throughout the city, this is The Economist.